Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at the purpose of and the passion for trains, planes and automobiles. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including a major report calling for tax concessions to businesses when buying electric vehicles. The Hyundai Tucson makes it to second place in sales in June. Nissan hangs out for their new Qashqai. And Kia bought out the old Nero model for just one year. In our feature story, we have spent some time in the Polestar 2, a recent all-electric vehicle on the Australian market. We talked to Evan Jones about how it drives, and then we talked to Alan Zervis about why the car asks you to log in with your Google account. It's all part of controlling your new car and linking it to familiar systems which you may use at home or elsewhere. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au. So let's get going. First, the news. Uh, just released a major report titled Business Fleets and EVs, Taxation Charges to Support Home Charging from the Grid and Affordability, has called for governments to give tax concessions to businesses when purchasing an electric vehicle because, they say, business fleets are the silver bullet solution to EV uptake. Home charging is also a key issue because over 40% of business vehicles are garaged at a home. Their modelling and discussions with fleet managers suggest that electric vehicles are still a major cost step for fleets to purchase, even if a company has high community ideals to pursue more sustainable operations. Tax concessions, such as depreciation rates, can have a very direct benefit to businesses, and then, after several years, the second-hand sale of EVs can more readily open up the private market. Dr Anna Mortimer from Griffith University, who was the lead writer of the report, has highlighted that businesses in other countries who have more focused policies to sustainable travel are a major purchaser of electric vehicles. It all comes down to what policies they adopt. For example, in Norway, the uptake of electric vehicles by companies, that was 34% compared to, say, in the Netherlands, the uptake of uh, electric vehicles by companies was 73%. So huge difference. The same with United Kingdom, they're targeting corporates. Uh, corporate registration was up to 67% of the uptake of electric vehicles in, in that country. So it's been, you know, their tax changes that they've made, the, the cuts to the, the taxes that are applicable for battery electric vehicles has made a, a significant difference. Nissan says that their new model Qashqai small SUV is ready for launch, but it won't be available till late in 2022. It can't come quickly enough for Nissan, who in June sold only one of the old model, and they've sold only nine in the first half of this year. Supply is clearly an issue. In the same month of June, the small SUV category leader, the MG ZS, also dropped sales significantly, but still managed to sell over 10,000 vehicles. The new Qashqai is European-designed and engineered and will have four trim levels. The exterior look is part of a general trend with SUVs, away from solid, practical-looking vehicles to more standout design features. 
The new Qashqai has power figures that are up a bit and fuel economy that has improved. Nissan has released the pricing of the new Qashqai, although, as Kia found out with the EV6, instability and supply chain costs make it hard to hold to original estimates. The base model Qashqai, the S, has a strong focus on safety, including a centre airbag between the front seats and driver assistance aids. Excluding on-road costs, pricing starts at a little under $34,000. The S Plus adds, among other things, a better infotainment screen and satellite navigation, and is priced from a little under $38,000. The STL has their Pro Pilot system that they say provides semi-autonomous driving and some safety aids, starting at a bit over $42,000. Their top-of-the-range TI, with more comfort features, including massaging front seats, starts at $47,400. To all prices, you have to add on-road costs. The list of the top 10 best-selling cars in Australia has been dominated by utes and SUVs for a number of years. But for the month of June 2022, the second best-selling car was the Hyundai Tucson, medium-sized SUV, which was released onto our market over a year ago. Guido Schenken, the senior PR manager for Hyundai, notes how supply issues are pivotal in achieving sales numbers. It's predominantly down to us getting a large amount of production over the previous two months. So we had a large supply of the Elite and Highlander diesel variants, and the markets snapped them up straight away. Do you find that people are taking what they can get? Is that uh, part of it? A little bit to do with it, but the Tucson is a very popular car, so we did have a a large order bank already. So we were able to fulfill our orders, and then we attracted a whole, whole bunch of new customers as well. Moving towards more electrification, be it a hybrid or a full electric vehicle, is more than just selling a new type of vehicle. Just one year ago, Kia launched a Nero model onto the Australian market, even though it was the generation that had been in overseas markets for four years. They have now launched an all-new generation model, which has some major refinements. There is no plug-in hybrid, but the normal hybrid is not just a mild version and achieves a good reduction in fuel economy, and achieves improved fuel economy. At the launch of the new model when driving on a rural road, Kia's product manager, Roland Rivero, described why they chose to introduce an old model for just one year. It had a big role to play, the the previous generation, despite having such a short time in Australia. It was our way to prepare Kia Australia and our dealer network for electrification. And that's that's not a, a quick thing that gets turned around overnight. Uh, we had to we had to go through a take the dealer network through a training program, whereby both um, the sales staff and the the service staff are fully trained to uh, to understand that this is a little bit different for, from your traditional internal combustion. We also had to convince them to invest in um, in infrastructure. We basically said, look, if we're going to go, you know, electrification, you guys are going to have to have a charger, both in the front end and the back end. And convincing all 138 dealers to do that requires a bit of convincing. And at the end of it, there's got to be a product that's there by which that they will say, well, it becomes a case of what's the point in us doing all this training and investment in infrastructure if there's nothing nothing to sell? So DE Nero played that role of preparing us 
so that by the time EV6 came out, the dealer network was ready and we were ready, Akira Australia included. And by the time this new Nero comes out, the, the dealer network is, is, is ready. So very important role to play. And if we had waited another year, for example, the EV6, that to me would have been you know, time, time wasted. And that has been the news. There's a new car on the block, the Polestar, which derived out of the technical applications that were made and done by certain groups for Volvo, but they have established their own business headquartered in Sweden, and they are focusing on electric vehicles and performance ones at that. We've been driving the Pulsar 2, and it was the hot version with the two electric motors and a sizable battery. And who better then to test its performance than our good friend, Evan Jones. G'day, Evan. Hey, David. How are you? Good, mate. The performance of it, 300 kilowatts, did it get those to the ground and did it feel good? It was a rocket ship. It was actually unexpected. I knew it had some grunt, but when I put my foot down the first time, it absolutely launched. I thought it was in the space shuttle. Very impressive. And, of course, this was sure-footed, being an all-wheel drive vehicle. Yes, it handled the whole time we had it. It handled really nicely. Um, you're quite confident behind the wheel of it. From that point of view, you can't fault it. It's really nice car from that point. It's not just a handling in terms of zooming around corners. It felt competent, secure, and uh, well-placed, even, say, on a motorway, sitting comfortably and, and sedately almost on 110 kilometres an hour. Absolutely. You'd be quite happy to go from city to city in that car because, as you say, it's a comfortable car. It has some straightish lines to it. It's certainly not um, e- exaggerated in its looks. I think it looks quite stylish. The front, how did you find that? Not ugly. It's got a very American-esque look about it, and that's not a criticism. That's just the way it looks. Yeah, look, it, it would win a beauty award, probably not, but... It looks muscular and um, purposeful. American-esque, I like the expression, not in the sense of the 50s and fins, but more, say, the uh, late 90s and uh, into the 2000s with some, yes, not squarish, but certainly not sort of bubble or thin-like things to it. It had some, I'm thinking of some of uh, the Cadillacs and that that they, they brought out. You were impressed with the boot, weren't you? You don't realise from its shape it's actually a hatchback, but when the hatch opens up, yeah, you could you could hide quite a few bodies in there. <laughs> it's uh, a really, really impressive boot. Yeah, very nice. Well, being like a hatchback, it, it allows more access, uh, a little bit like the, yes. the Kia Stinger in a way, that by hinging well up in the car, it's not just a little slot in the back to put, you know, to try and get into the boot area. And you could fold down the seats, and it also had, uh, what's that, a ski hold in it too. Yes. Or you could go to Bunnings and buy your, um, your, uh, your quad and run it through, no problem at all. You sat in it in the front, were you comfortable? Yes. Yeah, and the seat, uh, the adjustment, range of adjustment is, um, is it, if it's possible to have too much range of adjustment, yeah, you had plenty of opportunity to get the right seating up, down, forward, back, tilts in all directions. And it has memory too, which is good. Uh, very impressed with the seat. You can sit really high or you can sit really low. Nice. You and I talk a lot about the human-machine interface. How did you find the dials in front of you? You had just two screens to really pick from. There's precious few 
hard buttons. The screens are incredibly clear, really good definition on them. But yeah, it took a little bit of learning as to what the buttons are. The, they didn't use the standard symbols that you see in most cars now. So to, to move from another car to that took a bit of learning. The screens themselves are really easy to look at. And if you go to the more austere screens that you could pick from, very easy to read at the quickest of glances. Yeah, the, 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 the cameras are um, really impressive. Um, you have no problem seeing the perimeter of the car. The, um, the view from above uh, made navigating very easy, which is handy because it's a surprisingly big car. The cruise control, you quite like both setting it and, and making adjustments? Looks like the hang of it, yes. Yeah, it was it was pretty good. The best part of it was good. And I like the fact it was um good increments. Yeah, it was a, a sing, single kilometer increments. You and I both like that. You can press the button in some cars and you've jumped up five or ten in some cases, kilometers at a time. Mm. Whereas if you want to set just a little below the speed limit, it becomes very difficult. This was if there were stations in a supermarket or down down below. Now, we tried the voice actuation system. I thought it worked rather well. And if you had trouble, you remember we we had to ask a question and it gave a bit of advice. I thought that advice was about whether we could set the temperature or not for the cabin temperature. I thought that came over rather clearly. That was good. Probably the only downside was you had to know to ask the question with the correct words. But once you got out, once we got around that, yes, uh, the instruction it gave were clear and precise. Yeah, Amy told you what the structure of the question should be like. Uh, I, I thought that came over rather well, although the instructions for temperature were suggestions in Fahrenheit, either that or they wanted you to cook inside the car. That was... <laughs> Yeah, 60, 67 degrees, yeah. yeah. Confer yourself at 67 degrees, yeah. <laughs> it didn't adjust it to that, but it just recommended that that might be the way to do it. But you did say it didn't have standard symbols on it. Now, it became a two-step to get to the direction of flow if you wanted it at your feet or your face or onto the windscreen. Uh, it was two steps on the screen. I thought that was rather cumbersome. 100%. And even then, when you get to the second step, you're looking, well, which symbol is actually the one mm. for the feet and the screen? It's not the usual thing you see in 90% of the cars. It was something we had to interpret. And if you're in traffic, that's something. That's a distraction you can do without. Yeah, but two steps, even if you're familiar with it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Of course, to get to the actual temperature, you know, the, it and it had you know, split you know, dual temperatures in the front, which is fine, but it was a very little bit of uh, at the bottom of the screen, wasn't it, that you've got to yes. press, and it didn't look like a clear button or anything. That little tiny bar, and it's just that lucky you saw it because where I was sitting, I didn't see it. Mm. Yeah, it's very frustrating. Yeah, that should have been like an, an, um, a proper button, not just this little like line drawn at the bottom. Again, then it makes it a two-step process to just try and adjust yeah. your your uh, speed there and the flow. It had an interesting thing. You remember I said I had the problem. I was going along the motorway and suddenly the windscreen fogged up and I had to struggle to find a the, the control. Now, the reason it fogged up at that stage is it has a timer on the recycle function for the air. 
and then it will turn that off. You were saying, of course, it's a good idea not to be on recycle forever. Yeah. Recycle is good when you want to be missed the first time in the morning or if you want to get the interior warm nice and quickly or if you're going through a short tunnel that's going to have traffic jams in it. Mm. But if you keep recycling for too long, your cabin is going to fill with carbon monoxide that's come out of you, a carbon dioxide that's come out of you, and the moisture that's come out of you is going to cause the place to fog up. So it's mm. not a good thing to stay that way. You can adjust. There is something on the screen to say turn off the timer to it or turn it on. So in other words, there is an adjustment to it, but, boy, you've got to dig deep to uh, or spend time to find those sorts of limits. So overall, the new Polestar, it, uh, this one had a few teething issues that uh, we, we have to work through, but perhaps it was a pre-production car. Uh, but overall, how would you rate the vehicle? Teething issues aside, um, I was pretty impressed with it. Um, so the the um, performance, if you needed it, the, dare I say the explosive performance is quite mm. awe-inspiring. Um, the brakes were, had a nice feel to them. Um, given the electric brakes aren't servo-assisted because there's no, nothing to operate the servo, they felt really nice. It handled really well. Mm. Um, the sound system was good. Uh, I think if they could sort out um, uh, the lack of intuition in the controls and the, the and the ridiculous layer of controls, um, they have a pretty good car. That acceleration, not just for the hoon off at the lights, but if you're uh, turning into a fairly major road, it and with the good grip of all-wheel drive, it was giving you great competence to get to to smoothly move up to the flowing speed of the traffic you're entering, uh, that's what I particularly liked about it. Yes, yeah, and, and um, the grip of, of as you say, all-wheel drive is there and um, is very um, confidence-inspiring. Evan, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. No worries, mate. Thank you. Evan Jones, our good colleague, who's helping us particularly with the human-machine interface project. But there's also a love of cars as well there, which help us make a review. Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. It's not often a new four-wheel drive comes along, but INEOS is doing just that. They are building a new, rugged, robust four-wheel drive wagon for the true enthusiasts. Think Mercedes-Benz G-Wagon or the Toyota Land Cruiser GX70 series wagon, and you start to get the feel of the latest INEOS Grenadier. The original versions that are available now for order are powered by either an inline six-cylinder petrol or turbo diesel engine provided by BMW. INEOS, however, is part of a large global consortium that is heavily into hydrogen technology. In line with that, they have announced plans to build a hydrogen fuel cell electric four-wheel drive. The new model will use an all-new smaller platform than the Grenadier, while retaining its workhorse DNA and off-road capabilities. Launch timings are yet to be confirmed. 
The second model line will join the Grenadier and the Grenadier pickup in the Ineos automotive product family. Ineos continues to back hydrogen fuel cells as the clean powertrain solution for future versions of the Grenadier. A fuel cell technology demonstrator is due to begin on and off-road testing by the end of 2022. This is a Motoring Minute. I'm Rob Fraser. Overdrive, answering your questions across Australia. I had a lovely time driving the Pulsar 2 down the motorway, 110 kilometres an hour at the speed limit. It was raining rather hard, but it was wonderfully quiet, comfortable, enjoyed it immensely, but suddenly the windscreen fogged up. I stumbled around and found there was a one-button press to uh, maximise the defrosting of the windscreen, and that worked, although a little frustration until I found it. But then later I was experimenting with the voice actuation. I asked it about a changing temperature. I didn't quite ask the right words, but it gave me good advice. And then I tried demist. It didn't recognise that word. I tried defrost. And it immediately said, you have to register register for Google to do that. What the hell does Google got to do with it? Well, our expert in this form of interaction, and that is, of course, our our good friend from Gay Carboys, Alan Zervis, who joins us on the line. Alan, bells and whistles, that's all your uh, forte, isn't it? I love a bell and a whistle, David, and thank you for the intro. That's very impressive. <laughs> so you had a little trouble with your Googles. That's what's happened. Why do I need Google to make something work in the car? Let's just go back one step. The Google Android OS is what operates all new Polestars and Volvos. So the system is built into the car. There's not a third-party thing running the screen on the, on the dashboard. It's Google OS or Android OS. So it's an entire system that they've set up for cars. Now, what that does is integrate your Google account with everything else in the Google ecosystem. It's able to operate without it, but you'll find that when you picked up the car, it would have been logged into a guest account. So in order to get the full benefit out of it, you log in with your own account and everything that's in your Google account, everything that's attached to it comes with it. And then you can also add apps like uh, you know, Spotify and so forth. What it does is give you access to the hive mind and expands what the car is able to understand. And that's why you need to be connected to it. Voice actuation is wonderful if it works. Uh, now, Google and, uh, and others have been perfecting this for a long time. Is it a good thing that we access their system when they try to understand my ranting uh, rather than necessarily a car company trying to develop one from scratch? Well, if all car companies used it, I put it to you that voice recognition would become a hell of a lot easier to use because you get into some of the brands that you and I have been in together And no matter how hard you try, you can't make it understand you. You can even use the words it tells you to use, and it still doesn't work. Hmm. 
when it's using the hive mind, when it's using the internet, it's just much smarter. And besides, all of your Google devices are listening to you all the time, as is your Siri. You've shown me that in some cars, if you link to your Google, you can turn the air conditioning on at home or the lights on or you know, do those sorts of activities from your car as well. I hope I don't get ads or something from from things that from you know gambling or something or other that I well no ads that I want uh, there is a concern about distraction in that sense but you're finding then that you can perhaps ease your mind by saying turn the, the lights on at home or, or things of that nature well I only did it because I knew I could my partner was at home so I had no idea what was going on the TV went off the lights went on the other lights went on etc cetera, etc cetera. so I was just having fun but the serious side of that is let's say that you wanted something to happen whether it's in the car at home or anything else that connected with Google you don't have to do anything other than how you normally operate your Google how you normally operate, that's familiarity. And you and I have talked about the need for that in cars. For example, in the Polestar, to change from the air vent to your face, to your feet, or to both, it requires two steps on the screen. And the symbols for doing it are wonderful graphics, but they're not the standard ones. Uh, after driving the Polestar, I hopped into a very base model Nissan X-Trail and the buttons were clear and standard. It wasn't as sexy, but to some degree, that commonality, which you're saying we can learn when we use Google at home, can carry over into the car. Well, what I'm saying in this case, David, is that you'd have been able to tell Google to put all air on your face and it would have done it. You didn't need to touch a button. And yes. when I say you don't need to touch a button, the car is listening out for you. So just as you do with Apple CarPlay, you just say the words and, and Google does it for you. Uh, there are some things it won't do, but I found it operated almost all of the audio-visual things. It operated some of the car functions. It certainly operated the air conditioning faultlessly every single time. However, I did have some trouble with my Google account, coincidentally, during the week that I had the Polestar and I had to change my password. When I changed my password, it upset all of my Google <laughs> Google infrastructure. So there you go. But the logging into the Google in Polestar was relatively easy. You just uh, went to the system, said, I want to log in, and then the rest you did on your phone by okaying it in the Google app. Firstly, I should make sure I do that before I leave, but I didn't have to enter in a weird sort of, you know, my password, which has three capital letters and two numbers and four, four symbols or sentence or, or any of those things. You're saying I can enter in as a guest. Is, it? is that the point? I'm saying that Polestar already entered you in as a guest. So where we collect the cars from, that guest account would already have been set up. Ah. But because it's a guest account, it wouldn't have had anything attached to it. So, yes, it's attached to the internet, but uh, all of your Google access that you have with your, with your own account, you wouldn't have had access to. But you can add another account and you can switch between them. Alan, thank you very much for your time. I, I appreciate it greatly. As always, David, I've been very informative. <laughs> and so humble about it too. That's what I really like. And that was Alan Zervis from gaycarboys.com, which covers motoring and transport from his unique perspective. 
This is Overdrive across Australia. Toyota RAV4 GXL Hybrid two-wheel drive could be the perfect urban SUV. I spent a week in this car and it's priced from $40,450 plus usual costs. It's well styled, not too big so it's easy to navigate our tight city streets and car parks, yet big enough for weekends away with your friends if you like. As an SUV, you sit up higher and the body shape allows more luggage room than a sedan. The hybrid comes with a 2.5 litre four-cylinder petrol engine with an electric motor generator that drives through a six-step CVT. As you would expect, the economy is outstanding and we averaged around 5 litres per 100 kilometres on our test. The RAV4 GXL also comes with LED projector headlight, LED fog light, digital radio, illuminated door switches, rear seat reminder and LED interior lights. It's no surprise that Toyota sells a lot of RAV4 hybrids. They're easy to live with, economical, comfortable and practical. Pretty much everything a buyer will need. Is a RAV4 GXL two-wheel drive hybrid the perfect urban SUV? Well, that's a big call, but it's pretty good. This is Motoring Minute. I'm Brianna Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Evan Jones, Alan Zervis, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for the help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Listener.